is everywhere. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a, a hoax. hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? But what can we do about it? Protest is a really important part of change. If we weren't protesting, then you get the feeling that everything would stand still and the extinction that we're rebelling against would just continue. Would just continue. You're listening to the Polar Podcast about polarization in the climate debate. Today's guest on the Polar Podcast is European politician Bas Eickhout. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the fourth and final episode of the Storm Polar Podcast. Today we have uh, Bas Eickhout as our guest. So Bas, maybe first you can introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, good day everyone. So Bas Eickhout indeed, uh, member of European Parliament uh, since 2009. So already old and experienced, uh, I guess, uh, and, and mainly working on all the environmental legislation that you can think of in the European Union. So, uh, well, clearly, of course, connected to what storm uh, you're, you're studying on. Yes, I think that's uh, very clear. Well, the topic of this podcast has been polarization in the climate debate. So maybe as a first question, as a politician, how do you experience polarization? Well, I think in general in politics, you see polarization uh, all over the place, of course. Uh, and, and I think... You know, politically speaking, you need some political debate, right? I mean, I, I would even say sometimes at the European level, we we lack a bit the, the, the politicization of issues. So to a certain level, having a political debate and, and political opposition is good because it strengthens and it helps you in argumentation and, and also finding a compromise in the end. But that's, of course, the key point there. You still want to find a compromise. Compromise. So if you go too far with polarization, then, of course, at a certain moment, the opposites don't find each other anymore. And then at the political level, you, 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 you get stuck and that's not good. So I would say if I look in the climate debate, um, you know, 15 years ago or so, there was real polarization in, in the meaning that there was quite some climate denial there. That's not the case anymore. So you could say somewhere polarization is, is, is getting less because, well, basically 90% of the politicians agree that something needs to happen at, uh, on, on, on the issue of climate change. Um, but I think now uh, the, the low-hanging fruit has been reaped. So we're now getting into the more difficult uh, uh, areas. And then you see an increase of polarization again and and. And, and resistance in, in policies. So that's that's a bit the level where we are at the moment. Yeah, so to a certain extent, um, there is still polarization, maybe because of different interests uh, of different parties. Um, 
because you are your party is Soon Links. Yes, yeah, maybe I forgot to tell that in the so that's a, that my, I'm a green politician, so uh, um, yeah, the basic reason for going into the European Parliament for me was climate action. So that's that's for me, of course, has been the the, the red theme throughout my entire political career is trying to do something on climate action. Yeah, and in that sense, you do sometimes feel opposed by other political parties? Of course, there's opposition. Um, and as I said, right, to a certain level, that's also good to have some some kind of political debate. Uh, because, you know, if, if, we, if we pretend that there are no political decisions that need to be taken, then, of course, people feel like, hey, where does this come from? And now suddenly we have to do that. And then there's no support for it. I mean, political debate also is there to increase the, the public support for action. So you need a certain level of uh, polarization and debate. Um, but I think what the biggest problem for now is, is that, um, you know, all the countries, all the heads of state, all the politicians now are agreeing, we need climate action, we want to achieve climate neutrality. But then you see that, that each sector that then needs to act has basically some kind of protection. I think of in Germany, they want climate action, but not so much on cars because they have a big car industry. In Finland, they want climate action, but maybe not on forestry because they have a big forestry industry. In Poland, they want climate action, but not for coal because they have a huge coal industry. And, and every time, if we then have each sector being protected and they're all pinpointing, now the other one should move first, then of course you get stuck and then we will never reach climate neutrality. And I think this is now where we are, that we, yes, we have a political debate. We, we agree we need some action, but then the big question is, will we move on time and will we move fast enough? And well, that's, I think, the big question where we are right now. Yeah, and I can imagine that with all these different countries having different priorities, it's quite difficult to, to bridge these differences. So how do you go about this in, in, in the European Parliament? Do you um, together decide which, which sector has the priority or also a bit of the, the biggest countries have the biggest voices or yeah well I mean in general we don't have the luxury anymore to 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 pick and choose I mean we could have done that 10 years ago maybe but well if we want to meet the Paris targets and certainly if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees basically each sector needs to move so that's unfortunately the situation where we are now we can't really you know, exchange uh, kind of, okay, you do a bit here, then, then I'll leave you off the hook over there. Um, that's, that's, that's unfortunately not possible anymore. We've been waiting too long already. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the difficulty. Now, I think most important, therefore, is really that that's, we need massive investments in all the sectors. And this is, of course, the big question about money. Uh, because in theory, money can uh, overcome some of the resistance eh, with money. Uh, just think of uh, in, in Poland. Basically, the coal-fired power plants need to close in Poland as well. And that's not a very nice message for all those people working there or are working in the mines. Well, you can overcome that resistance by investing in those regions so that Europe would say, OK, we are going to help you in transition away from your coal industry. And the same is in Germany, you know, the coal, or sorry, the car industry will need to readjust. 
and we'll have to think of electric cars and eh? electrification of the of their um, of their engines instead of the current combustion engine. Yeah. That can be done, but also there investments are needed. So I think um, one of the ways is, of course, by showing the prospects that there are alternatives, that there is job employment uh, also in an, in another way possible. But basically, the big the big challenge will be a massive investment program. And there, of course, then how to make sure that countries support that at the European level, that investment will be done. That's that's a big political discussion we're having right now. Yeah, yeah. So the investments can give the the right prospects for the kind of the sectors that are in doubt. But I can imagine exactly. That maybe, yeah, you can do a lot with money. Yeah, like and imagine that maybe if everything, like what you're saying, now is the time to act, and everything needs to happen in all sectors, might also help in a sense because then there's no pointing of a certain sector like, but they don't have to because everyone has to uh, has to change yeah basically and this is also of course what i i mean i of course quite often get complaints from a certain sector what do you have against us and then i always say well sorry it's not against you because i'm saying this to each sector so i'm not uh, i'm not going against one specific sector it's it's really a message that now everyone needs to uh, adjust to and it's 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 hard work and it's a lot of fighting eh? politically fighting mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but, but I think it's the only way to get it done. Yeah. And you've been talking about uh, Germany and Poland and Finland before. Um, so as a European politician, you have to work with many different people with also different cultural backgrounds. Um, do you think this, how does this affect the, the politics that, that are happening? To be very honest, that's the nicest part of European politics, to be very honest. I mean, uh, you have to work with the different cultures within the EU. And that's also, you know, sometimes I follow the Dutch political debates and, you know, it doesn't always make me very happy uh, or make me very impressed because it's a very small arena. Uh, and 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 we think we know best. But I can tell you there are 27 countries who think they know best. <laughs> So it's, 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 it makes you, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 I think it's sometimes better to see the, that it's all relative and that, that, you know, doing politics is in the end convincing a lot of people who have totally different starting position and starting uh, views on, on the issue and then com- coming together. And that's how Europe has been working for decades. And I think that's, that's really the, 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 the secret success of Europe, that we are overcoming all these different cultures. And in that sense, uh, Europe has always been less polarized than in the national arena. Yeah. If you look at the national debate, there it's full polarization uh, on almost each topic. But we all know at the European level, if you do a full polarization, it's nice for the audience maybe, but in the end, it will not bring you anywhere. And, and I think, therefore, we all know at the European level that, that we have to overcome this polarization in order to, to make progress. And that's usually the attitude more at the European level than what you see at the national level. And I would say that's the nicer part of European politics. Yeah, so maybe because it's so actively present is that you actually deal with it, uh, while maybe in Dutch politics it's sometimes overlooked that this is the case, all these different uh, viewpoints. So then it's not actively overcome. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's also very clear, you know, with 27 member states and all these different political families, yeah, because it's, it's, I would say, double, you have double majorities you need, right? You always need majorities of a majority of countries, but you also need a majority in the European Parliament where the political families are acting. So you need so many majorities, you need to build so many majorities that if you cannot compromise, forget about European politics, then, then you will not get far. And sometimes that's totally different in a national arena where polarization is being rewarded. You get more attention. You don't achieve anything, but you do get attention. And for some politicians, that seems to be the, the reason for being active in politics. Well, that's, that's not how Europe works. So um, I think some national politicians would get very unhappy at the European level. Yeah, yeah maybe because also I feel that the, the national politics are indeed, what you say, more uh, in the news, like more uh, getting more attention of the media as well. So in European, there's a bit more of a gap maybe directly with media and just the, the people, but... And therefore, they are less um, distracted, maybe, by this attention-seeking. Well, this is, this is the dilemma, right? Because you need the checks and balances. So you need the media attention in order to, to really make sure that, that every, what a politician is doing is being checked and being seen. And then also, you know, people can judge whether they like it or not. So that's, that's in a way, the, the democratic deficit that we're having at the European level is there, but the, indeed the, there is a plus side to it. And that is that, you know, politicians who went into politics just to get attention and, you know, polarize for the attention, yeah, it doesn't pay off that well at the European level. So that's, that's I would say, the plus side of this lack of democratic control. Uh, so that's, that's the interesting dilemma of this year, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, interesting indeed. And um, you spoke about, um, yeah, so you, in the end, you have to compromise. So polarization is good to a certain extent. So you have the argumentation, you have the discussion, but then you need to compromise. Do you sometimes also use the polarization as a tool to convince parties of your like green uh, left ideas? Well, I think I think everyone is guilty for that, right? Um, um, I, I think I I never lie. Eh? You know, there's always this this kind of you know. I mean, sometimes you are focusing on the arguments that help your side of the story. So you are sometimes for making the political point, you are enlarging the argumentation basically. But that's indeed for making your points for. Also, sometimes, you know, making clear where the differences are, because sometimes in a political debate, it seems like, oh, we all agree. But, you know, well, we, yeah, we do not in the end, because that's why there is some so different attitude towards certain actions. So then you in order to to signal out and to highlight the difference, you, you have to enlarge it. Sometimes it helps you politically, but this kind of enlarging the difference is only useful if later on you can get together again. So, and this is always the balance in politics. You sometimes need it in order to make your points, to show the political debate, to show the differences and to convince others, right? Because that's always in a political debate, you never debate against one person to convince that person, but you do it to convince the audience. Um, yeah. 
And I think that's what you always need to, you know, if you look in the in the Dutch parliament and you see two politicians fighting over, they never try to convince each other. They try to sell the winning argument to the audience. Uh, and I think that's that's useful. That can be. And for that, sometimes you need to enlarge an issue. Eh? You need to seek some sort of polarization, uh, but but never without losing your end game is where you need where, you know, we need each other again. So, you know, it's always uh, it's, it's this this political dance around polarization and compromising that you need to do. Yeah. Yeah, so for example, when taking it in terms of the climate debate, you can all say, yeah, we're all on the same page, we need action, but you want there to be more action than another party. So then you yeah, go into that difference between how much action does each party want or each... Uh... Yeah, well, just an example, right? I mean, um, everyone is always saying, oh, I'm, I'm for climate action. But then, then quite often you hear a politician say, oh, but we need to be technology neutral. We need to, you know, we should not pick and choose one certain technology we do not know. So we want climate action, but we should not be technology neutral. Well, that sounds all nice because no one wants to say, no, no, I know better than an engineer whatsoever. But in the end, governments have never been technology neutral. Do you think that uh, the gas infrastructure that we got in the 60s, once in Groningen we found the gas there, do you think that that infrastructure just got there because the government was technology neutral? No, they wanted to, they wanted to connect all the houses with the gas from Groningen. That was a political decision. So it sounds nice, technology neutral, but it's quite often an argument to have business as usual, to, to move slowly, whereas we need to get out of fossils. So you cannot afford to be technology neutral because already the end of fossil fuels is a technology choice. So here you see that sometimes words sound very nice and you think, oh, yeah, good point. But then if you really dig into it, it turns out to be an argument to do less. And that you need to expose and that you need to enlarge a bit and to show what are you saying now, technology neutral? What do you mean? And then hopefully people will realize, oh, yeah, maybe we should not be technology neutral. And then you can do decisions on, for example, phasing out coal, which is not technology neutral, of course, if you want to phase out coal. Yeah. Yeah. And also it could be that what you're saying, this, this term is used, which sounds nice, but maybe also people have different uh, definitions of such a term that they are using. Yeah, and secretly in the end, no one is technology neutral, really no one, because those same people say you have to be technology neutral, uh, then the next day are lobbying for biofuels or whatsoever. So it's going, kind of, oh, and now some people are not technology neutral anymore. So, I mean, really, technology neutral neutrality is a, is a kind of a, it's a, it's a political argument for slow action, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting to see how, how these terms are then used indeed for trying to, to seem as if you're on the same page, but then actually knowing that you're not, but just wanting to slow things down. That's what exactly, that's exactly what we call politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, now we talk, we're talking about the politics, but in the end, what you were also mentioning before you're doing this, for the audience, so actually for society. Um, 
yeah, you are a politician. You want to shape society in a way that you think is, is best. Um, and as a politician in the European Parliament, what can you do to minimize this polarization happening in society? Well, I think here, uh, I think it's quite important that as a politician, you are a bit of a role model, right? I mean, and here, let's be honest, I mean, I know very well, as a member of the European Parliament, my, I'm, I'm less of a role model than a national politician. I think that's, that's where the biggest differences is between the national arena and the European arena. I think at the European arena, you do more lawmaking and and uh, get more done. <laughs> to be very honest, yeah. but for the for the kind of if you want to be the politician that is really uh, shaping the society, then of course you are better equipped there in the national parliament and in the European Parliament. I'm I'm further away from that, but still you are a role model. And and what I try to do is is really when I am communicating in public is, is really always, uh, you know, showing what you want to achieve and, and uh, being very clear about that. But at the same time, always be also respective of, of your political opponents. And, you know, I do a lot of uh, social media communication and, and I would say, see me on Twitter. Uh, I don't think you see me there uh, attacking any others uh, stick to your own message and show where you believe in but also uh, show respect for for you know everyone so if someone starts yelling at me which happens of course i mean you're a politician and so you get you get some uh, social media shit over you to be very honest yeah then i just ignore because it's kind of you know that's that's not the way in the end how our society will can progress yeah, so kind of don't, I'm not sure if this is an English term, but don't play it to the person, uh, but keep it to the subject which you're yeah, wanting that's, to that's, convey. I was also, exactly, I was seeking for that English translation where you say you're tough on contents, but soft on the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting. And, and you just said that um, you feel that you're less shaping society in European uh, politics as compared to national politics but maybe in a sense because you you pass more laws or you you get more done um indirectly this effect is not so uh, not so small compared to the national one but people maybe i think yeah. yeah no i no i agree i think i mean i i do think i'm i'm shaping a lot indeed but um as i said and this is really for me the key of doing politics, it's always two sides. On the one hand, it is indeed uh, shaping society by, by the lawmaking and the changes you make in law. But at the same time, you will never ever uh, be capable of doing that on the long term if there is no public support for it. You need the public support at the same time. So you also need to shape public opinion. Yeah. And and. Doing politics is really doing both, you know, changing the law, but also changing public support, changing public opinion. And as a member of the European Parliament, you are far better equipped to do the first, changing the law. It's much more difficult to change the public opinion. I think a national parliamentarian is the other way around. You are better equipped to change a public opinion, 
but lawmaking is far less than what you do at the European level. And probably the, 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 the best balance would be somewhere in between the two, but we haven't found that optimal balance yet, neither in The Hague or in Brussels, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, but it's an interesting take, I think, on the difference also between national politics and European politics and um, maybe what you think is more important or where your um, ambitions lie like to see which type of politics would maybe fit you best uh, in case there are people listening that, that pursue a, think yeah. of pursuing a, a political career. Exactly. If you want to be in the spotlight, probably the European Parliament is not the best place for you. Mm-hmm. And um, if I'm correct, uh, you were also a student in environmental science. Yes. So how was your road to towards uh, becoming a European politician? Well, um, first of all, I, I just did the, 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 the default road, I would say. So I did it in Nijmegen, by the way. So I, I doubted between uh, Utrecht and Nijmegen. I choose for Nijmegen. Um, I choose because it's better biking around Nijmegen. So it was not... not uh, a thorough analysis, but in the end, I thought that there are more hills around Nijmegen than around Utrecht. Um, so, but I did environmental studies indeed, um, and um, then after that, I went to, and then I moved to Utrecht, and I uh, I had been working in Bildhoven, in the in the National Environmental Assessment Agency, and I was doing. Policy. I was doing climate change research, but really immediately also uh, with a policy uh, uh, advising role, right? So, and that was clear after being at the university for a couple of years. I didn't feel like, do I want to do I want to get a promotion? Basically, uh, there were some offers to to stick at the university. But for me, it sounded very boring. Uh, I'm not saying that for others they shouldn't, but this is just a personal choice. For me, I wanted to do more research policy-driven immediately. So I've always had this kind of more fascination with the, with the kind of the, the bridge between science and policymaking. And then doing research for policy advising was, of course, really very fascinating. So I did that between 2000 and 2010, uh, roughly. And then, um, then while doing that, I more and more got annoyed that even at such a policy advising research institute, you had the feeling that your uh, beautiful reports were not really picked up by policymakers. And, and at a certain moment, I really felt like, okay, um, the big problem lies at the political level, not at the scientific level. The science message had uh, the big lines of science are already clear for 15 years, I would say. So, so then I just didn't want to become old and cynical and uh, complain about policymakers and politicians who don't get it. Uh, then at least I should try to do it myself. And that's where somewhere around 2007, eight, I decided to, you know, go for it and it was a gamble I was really uh, it was it was a it was you know uh, diving into the deep waters Uh, and I just wrote a letter to the party saying I want to become uh, uh, I want to get on your list and I was lucky in 2009 uh, there were no old members of parliament who wanted to continue so it was all new people and 
And in the end, they were seeking someone who knew about uh, environmental matters for a Green Party imported, of course. So I ended up at position two on the list. And so it was really a big change in my career and it was a big gamble. But, uh, well, that I'm still around shows you that, that, uh, that I think the gamble played out well. Yeah, it turned out, uh, turned out good. And do you, from this side, because you kind of went from the, from the making policy advice uh, from the scientific side to taking up this advice, do you have more understanding now for, for the, the politicians or what do you, how has your opinion changed of uh, the old cynical politician? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm still not old and, well, I'm not cynical. When I'm old or not, I leave that to others to judge. Um, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't say I understand it better, but I see where it comes from. I, I, I see why for a lot of politicians, um, if for you climate change is one of the many topics you work on, and that's unfortunately for, you know, for where the real decisions are taken by heads of state, etc., for them, climate is one of the many issues. And you see that, uh, you know, if you do politics, everything is exchangeable. You know, if I, if I give you this, uh, I'll get that. So everything is a kind of a political uh, deal making. But with climate, you cannot do that. That's, that's the biggest problem of climate. I mean, we've done it now so long that now you have to move everywhere, basically. So the kind of the classic political deal-making has become quite complicated. And this is where you see that basically our political model is not capable of, of doing enough on climate action for now. And so I understand where it comes from. I see how it happens. But still, it's a bit frustrating because for me, you know, it's, it's climate action is really at the core of changing our society to a new society in 30 years time. So that's massive. You know, we've built we've built a fossil economy in 150 years and now going to change that drastically in 30 years. That is that is huge and should be the big political assignment for all the politicians. But let's be honest, for a lot of politicians, climate is just one of those many things, unfortunately. So I understand it better, yeah. Uh, I see where it comes from, but uh, I'm not saying that it always makes me happy. No, I'm still uh, frustrated now and then. Uh, I also have successes, so I mean, I'm not totally desperate, and you still celebrate them, because otherwise, indeed, you, you cannot do your job if, if it's only one set of disappointments in a row. But um, no, no, my mood sometimes is, is shifting from being very optimistic to being very depressed and everything in between. Yeah, yeah, because then it seems that not everyone sees this interconnectedness of, of the climate issue with all these other issues. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and just, you know, you know, our prime minister, um, I still don't thinks that he really realizes uh, what a challenge it is to become climate neutral. For him, it's just one of the things you write down, oh, I'm going to be climate neutral. Okay, but this means something, you know, this means a total other industry. Our entire chemical industry in the Rotterdam Harbor needs to totally change. 
this is not a light uh, target that you can say, okay, uh, you know, next week I, I want to increase my boosters with 10% and I want to be climate neutral. The, 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 it's really different level of, of, of action required. Yeah. yeah. And then now, of course, with the, the new coalition agreement, they, well, you talked about investments in the beginning. I think they, they did uh, take up that message of investments. But do you think that, I'm not sure how, how much you're uh, looking also at the national politics, but do you think this gets us close to where we should be heading? Well, of course, I, I follow it closely. And uh, I think in a way that they are now seeing the point of investments, I think that's important and that will certainly help. I still think the level of investment is an underestimation. So uh, we're not there yet. I mean, it, it it's all sounds massive, right? 35 billion euros. I mean, I don't have it in my wallet either. But uh, but if you look at the big requirements, this is only the beginning, to be very honest. Um, but I think where the biggest challenge will be is really how can we have how can we maintain public support for this? Because if the people get the feeling like, OK, money is thrown into it, but in the end, it's only the industry that profits from it and we still need to pay. Uh, for us, gasoline gets more important, uh, more expensive. Uh, energy gets more expensive, and meanwhile, we throw the billions at the industry. Then, of course, the public support will evaporate, and this is really the biggest challenge of of doing climate policies. Is also uh, how can we make it a just transition, uh, a socially just transition. And there I'm more afraid of, because if you don't make it a socially just transition, then in the end, support will evaporate and then you still will not make it. And that balance of, you know, investing, but at the same time, making, making this transition socially just, there I think the, this government still has some uh, <clears throat> improvements to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe to... Um take it a bit closer to um, well, the audience, mostly students, uh, so people who are in this society, in this public. Um, do you have any ideas on how we can, can act to, to get this, this public support or to close the, the gap uh, within the climate debate? Well, I think, and this is really, don't underestimate your role. That's, that's probably, uh, I mean, this entire attention for climate was really not possible without the, the pressure that has come from the streets. And I understand very well that sometimes people get a bit tired of it and kind of, yeah, well, didn't they get the message yet? And then the answer is no, they didn't get it enough. Um, as I said, because climate is one of the many themes for a lot of politicians, so they move on from theme to theme, and if you don't pay attention anymore to climate, then it will be ticked off the agenda by another theme, because there's always something. Um, and, and here, really, um, you know, okay, you are students, so first of all, of course, make sure that, that you know, the information that you are requiring, that it's, that it's reaching a broader public. But at the second time, really remain engaged, remain putting pressure on politicians. There, 
are successes thanks to that. And, and really, it's, it, it's, it's difficult to overstate the impact of this protest that we have seen. It has made politicians move much more than they would have done without that public pressure. So this role in the society that every individual has is super crucial for, for climate action. Yeah, well, thank you for, uh, for, I think, closing up with a very, um, well, for, for us, maybe sort of optimistic point of view, like don't underestimate what, what one person or a group of people can do. Yeah, and that's maybe also in politics, right? I mean, I know that some people always think that uh, there is a kind of a, a grand scheme behind or whatsoever. Really, politics is much more amateuristic than you think. And it's indeed, and that's sometimes maybe disappointing, but on the other hand, therefore, it's also much more relying on individuals than you think. So really, you can make a difference. Uh, and by putting pressure on a couple of individuals, you can make a difference. So there is no big scheme. There is, uh, politics is much too amateuristic for that. Um, that might be a bit sobering, but I think it also can have a positive message because it means that a lot of things can still change and are not fixed and pre-cooked yet. So change can happen if we want and if we put the pressure. Yes. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, that final note. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to, to still note for the, for the people listening? No, I think I think it's uh, it's great what you are also doing, you know, in, in, in Storm and, 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 you know, basically playing a bit of a societal role while you are also studying. And I think that's uh, that balance is 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 important to, uh, well, make you make you a, a more valuable individual for our entire society. So keep up the good work. <laughs> I hope uh, I hope we will. Um, so thank you very much for the audience. Uh, this was the final episode of the podcast. I would like to thank all of the uh, four guests that we had so far and especially Bas Eikhout for this uh, final, final note. Um, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>